Good morning, church. Welcome. Awesome to be together this morning. Hope everybody had a phenomenal Thanksgiving. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Is it good? Yeah, if you notice this morning, my voice is a little bit scratchy. And the reason, the reason why my voice is scratchy is because I ate a sum total of four pies over Thanksgiving weekend and all the sugar that goes with it. So this is what sugar does to my body. I apologize, but it was worth it. Uh, I hope it was worth it for you guys. Uh, just a couple things to uh, put in front of us this morning. First thing is uh, a thank you to those of you that did Thanksgiving baskets. Thanks for uh, putting them together, dropping them off, distributing them. I know that, um, yeah, we had a whole bunch of families that were blessed around the area because you guys were generous. So thanks for putting Thanksgiving baskets together to feed people. And then next thing is this, um, today after the 1040, we're going to decorate this place, get it ready for Christmas as we move from Thanksgiving into the rest of uh, December. So Christmas decoration happened right after the 1040. If you want to linger around and join, if you're a decorating uh, Christmassy kind of person, then hang out. We'll have food here to feed you. So that's happening. Okay, are you guys ready? We're, uh, we're finishing up our shame series, shame number four, bringing the train into the station this morning. And then we're going to head into Christmas uh, starting next week. Actually, this week is actually, we're finishing shame and we're kind of actually introducing in a way uh, our Christmas series uh, by accident, but it just so happened that way. That will make sense in a couple of weeks, I think. But anyway, let's begin. Uh, when I was growing up, we had a word that we used to describe certain kinds of kids whose parents um, isolated and protected them from the world. And we called those kids sheltered. And typically those kids were like homeschool kids. My kids are homeschool kids, right? Uh-oh. Um, but, so, and I, under, I, understand, I understand a parent's desire to protect their kids from the world. I get it. Um, but the, the word is what it is, sheltered. And sometimes parents can shelter their kids because the world is a dangerous place. Now, whatever the opposite of sheltered is, I mean, like the extreme opposite, whatever that word is, let's just assume and say that that was Jesus's experience, right? Um, as, as a father to my kids, I do want to protect them from so many of the evils and difficulties of the world. But the father in Jesus had a whole different kind of thing going on. And when you read the story, it's as if the father intentionally placed Jesus in the epicenter of the onslaught that the world desired to throw at him. I mean, think just regarding his birth. Um, Jesus is in utero, and his mom has to make a many-mile trip from her hometown to Bethlehem. And then when she gets there, she has to give birth in a cave, which is also a stable. Right? So for most of us, um, our birth experiences were very different. We got into a car, and we drove safely to a hospital, and we were surrounded by medical professionals who were there to do anything and everything they could to protect us and make sure that things were sanitary and make sure we were safe. Jesus didn't have that. That was not his birth experience. He's in a cave. He is a, a cave stable surrounded by animals. There was no other place for him to be. No medical professionals, just him, mom, dad, and the goats, donkeys, and cows. That's not sheltered. And then shortly into his life, uh, the king under the Roman government, Herod, 
was actually seeking to murder him. Hadn't even met him, but Herod sends his onslaught of soldiers to find baby Jesus in order to kill him. And Jesus then is immediately running for his life, becomes a refugee, and lives his early years in the land of Egypt as a sojourner, the opposite of sheltered. And then fast forward all the way through to the very end, and you find Jesus hanging on a cross, exposed to the world in any and every way possible, and everyone is glaring and mocking and berating, and this is after they literally assaulted him with all manner of implements and devices intended to bring great harm to him. Whatever the opposite of sheltered is, that was Jesus' earthly experience. Particularly, I just want to draw our attention to two things that we've been talking about over the past four weeks now. That Jesus was anything but sheltered, uh, specifically, let's just say, regarding sin. Right? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this. Right? Regarding sin. Uh, the writer says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but, and he's speaking of Jesus, but we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. So Jesus was tempted in every single way that we, plural, we, humankind, are tempted. I have not been tempted in every way that humankind has been tempted. I've been sheltered because of my unique singular experience of living in a sinful world. Jesus experienced the temptation of all people. Sin assaulted Jesus more than it assaulted anyone else in human history. No sheltering there. And the reason why Jesus had this experience with sin is, well, one, because sin wanted to get him more than any human in all of history. But two, the Father wanted Jesus to be a high priest who could sympathize with all of us in all of our temptations, in all of our weaknesses, so that he can meet us in our need. But Jesus met the full, furious onslaught of sin, unlike any person ever has. And then finally, on the cross, he actually took the literal sin of all of us upon himself. No sheltering there. Now that's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that talks about Jesus and his experience with sin. Now regarding this next thing that I want to share, I've got no chapter and verse from the Bible to share with you. But in the same way, I believe that Jesus experienced the onslaught of sin more so than any person in human history. I also believe that he experienced the onslaught of shame beyond what any person in human history has ever experienced. Think about Jesus' story. Just go back to his birth. We're going to talk about this over the next several weeks. But in his birth story... Um, just imagine Jesus in third grade, explaining his family tree to his fellow classmates. Um, hey, Jesus, who's your mom and dad? Well, my mom's Mary, but my dad, well, that's complicated. Is it Joseph? Eh, yes, but no. 
And this is in a highly moralistic society where the law of God is ingrained in the hearts and minds of every young little boy and girl. And they took sin seriously, so seriously that there was a woman who was caught in adultery. We read in the New Testament, and the leaders of that town were ready to throw stones at her until she was dead. So Jesus is birthed into circumstances that we would describe as scandalous in our society that is anything but a moral society. Now you take that 2,000 years ago into the land of Israel, and boy, that was capital S scandalous. And you want to talk about shame? Be birthed into that family where there's questions and I wonder what's really going on there. And yeah, Mary says this is what happened, but come on, really? Yep, that was Jesus' origin story. And just regarding his birth story and the things that Jesus must have heard growing up, shame on you. Shame on you, Jesus. In addition to his birth story, which is scandalous, uh, Jesus was born poor. Uh, We know that because when he was offered at the, he wasn't offered at the temple, but when an offering was made for him at his birth in the temple, that Mary and Joseph gave a sacrifice that was the sacrifice akin to what the poor class would give. Very small offering was made. He was raised in poverty. Shame on you, Jesus. In addition to that, uh, he was born in a barn, right? Uh, Typically when someone says, what, were you born in a barn? It's not a compliment. Jesus was literally born in a barn. When he grew up to be an adult, he would say uh, of himself, uh, the son of man has no place to lay his head. You ever feel the shame of not having what everyone else around you have? Yeah, Jesus felt that. Shame on you, Jesus. How about his physical appearance? Isaiah 53, a prophecy about the coming Messiah, says there was nothing about his physical appearance that would draw any of us to him. Jesus wasn't a good-looking man. You ever feel shame because there's something about you that you don't like? Well, yeah, Jesus felt all that. Jesus, look in the mirror. Shame on you. How about his hometown? When Jesus was faithful to his calling when he began his adult ministry, he went to his hometown to minister to them, and they sought to throw him off of a cliff. How's that for being well-received by the people who know you best? Shame on you, Jesus. Off the cliff you go. How about the society and cultural movers and shakers that we all want to be liked by? Government leaders, religious leaders, um military leaders, all the movers and shakers around Jesus, um, they didn't take very kindly to him. What they actually did is they mocked him, they abused him, they paraded him around. Shame on you, say the movers and shakers to Jesus. The onslaught continues. There's no sheltering going on here. Jesus is not protected in the hollow from the evils of the world, from the shame that we all experience. And how about his disciples towards the end, those who were closest to him? Yeah, all 12 of them abandoned him in the end. Just as he was getting to the place where he's ready to lay his life down for them, they abandoned him one after the other. 
One actually uh, denied that he ever even knew him within earshot of Jesus as he's going in to be around the movers and shakers who are going to mock him and berate him and shame on you, right? How does that feel when those that are closest to you say, I never knew the man? Shame on you, Jesus. One of his disciples actually literally went to the movers and shakers who wanted to get rid of Jesus and betrayed him after being with him for three years for a bag full of coins. That's some shame. Shame on you, Jesus. And then at the very end, Jesus was lifted high. But not in the way that we would think a king would be lifted high. He was lifted up on a cross. And he was not paraded around in victory, but he was naked, he was bludgeoned, he was crowned with thorns, he had thieves on either side of him, and he was incapacitated and immobile in front of everyone because he was literally nailed hands and feet to a cross, the most shameful way that any human person could ever die. And everyone who was walking by is wagging their finger saying, shame on you. Jesus was not a sheltered child of the Father. Whatever the opposite of that is, that was his experience in all manner of things. And with sin and the temptations that come with it and shame and the onslaught that we know it to be. So I think that Jesus was shamed in every way that we are and more so than any human person has ever been on the face of the earth. And as our high priest, because of his experience, he is able to sympathize with us and to linger with us in our shame and to walk with us and to comfort us because he knows it intimately. Now, there's three things that as we observe Jesus, I think that we can learn from him regarding shame and how to deal with it because it assaults all of us. What did Jesus do with shame that we can learn from him as the great high priest that he is for us? Here's number one, Hebrews 12, chapter two. Right, The writer of Hebrews, after Hebrews 11, where we've been all year, says to the same people that he's been writing to, he says, here's what we got to do, friends. We got to look to Jesus. Look to him. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, and here, here it is, here's the word, despising its shame. What does Jesus do with shame? He despises it. But let, me, let me tease this word out a little bit because given if you've been in our series for a while, this will ring ironic for you. The word that we translate deserted here is actually two words mixed together. One of them is think, and then the other is this, kata, Greek word. It's one of the same root words that's in shame, but it means this. It's the motion from higher to lower. Does that ring a bell? When Jesus felt shame, here's what Hebrews 12, 2 is saying, that Jesus thought not highly of it, but he thought, he thought little of it. 
The world is assaulting him with shame. And they're saying, shame on you, Jesus, in so many ways regarding his person, his family, his calling, his looks, his socioeconomic status. In every way, they're saying, shame on you. And what Jesus did with all of that is he thought little of it. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm getting shame and I'm receiving it and I'm feeling it, it's hard for me to think little of it. But Jesus thought little of the shame that was being assaulted upon him. That's number one. Here's number two. What does Jesus do regarding shame? How does he deal with it? He thought little of it, number one. Number two, I think that what Jesus does, and we see this all through his life, is that Jesus is fantastic about hearing his father's words instead of just hearing people's words. Amen. Jesus is tuned into the frequency that the father is speaking. Right? And the father is always speaking, the father is always working, he's always moving, he's always showering us with love and affection and kindness and grace, all these things. But the problem is we're oftentimes not tuned into it. We got the radio frequency wrong, but Jesus was always more so tuned into what his father was saying than what all of the shame on you voices around him were saying. Just check this out, just in case you don't believe me. Luke chapter 23, I love this. Jesus is on the cross. It's happening right now. The most epicentered, shame-riddled environment that any human person has ever experienced, the world has ever seen. Jesus is in the middle of it. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Right? And Jesus says here, Father, who's he talking to? He's talking to his Father in the cross, epicenter of shame. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And as Jesus is speaking to the Father, what's going on right around him? Well, the immediate circumstances beyond the cross in all of that is, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Shame is uh, assaulting him in every way all around him. Shame on you, shame on you, you, boo, Jesus. Like it's just coming at him. That's what the world is saying to him. But who's he talking to? Father. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm listening to you. I'm talking to you. And he says, forgive them. Wow. And then in verse 46, Then Jesus, this is again at the cross, epicenter of shame, but doesn't get any worse than this. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus is in a shame-riddled environment from birth to death. And in the midst of that, he got really good at hearing his father's voice. He thought much. He thought a lot. Highly of what the father said. And he thought little of the shameful voices that followed him everywhere he went. So, we must think little of what the world 
says. We must despise the shame that longs to be heaped upon us. That's number one. Number two, we must hear God's words to us. Be in tune with what the Father is saying because it's very different than all the other voices that we're hearing, even the voices that we speak to ourselves. And then here's the third thing. And this is the call to action. You guys ready for this? Here's your homework for the rest of your life. Number three, you're going to have to get really good at preaching the word of God to yourself. See, the good news is, like, you all have specialty vocations. Some of you are engineers, some of you are technicians, some of you are medical professionals, some of you are homemakers, and you are awesome in all those things. The downside is, uh, or the good news for me is, I don't have to learn all of your vocations. I don't have to get good at those things. But if we're going to follow Jesus well, and if we're going to actually turn the momentum on shame that is so eager against us, if we're going to win that battle, you're going you're to have to learn how to preach every single day to your own mind and your own heart. Because, like Jesus, but in lesser ways, from now until the day we die, we will be assaulted from the world and from the dark powers and the combinations thereof, and they're all interspersed and mingled together. We will be assaulted by shame. And as we said in week one, some of the shameful things that we feel are because of ways that we have, arrow coming out, miss the mark. Archery term, sin, miss the mark. Some of the shame we feel is because of what we have done. Some of the shame we feel is because of what other people have done to us. Things they've said, ways they have assaulted, ways they have abused, and we carry that shame. Shame will seek us out. But what we need to do is we need to engage in, regarding that shame, what we'll call a war of the words. A war of the words. Right, And if you're going to get into a war of the words, you've got to learn to preach. Now, here's the truth. Formerly, I think, I think we always, I think we're always actually preaching to ourselves. Always. It's just, I think that oftentimes our preaching actually is more so aligned with the dark powers of the world than with the Father himself. Because sometimes, right, right here, preach it, Brian. Here's what we say in the mirror. You loser. That's a message right there, right? You are such an idiot. Um, you good for nothing. Brian, you break those two layups. How could you do that in front of everybody? You're never going to get this right. That's preaching right there. That's words. Words have power. That's the war of the words right there. And my words are going out and they're coming back and they're assaulting me. And I am participating along with the dark spiritual forces and I'm aligning my words with them and I'm preaching this darkness and this shame upon myself. We all preach to ourselves. I just don't think we're saying the right thing things. Shame on me. Everybody said, Jesus, shame on you. We don't necessarily need anybody to say that because we do that to ourselves. Shame on me. Shame on me. We're actually 
warring against ourselves on behalf of the shame team. But what the invitation is, when I say preach to ourselves, we've got to start preaching the right messages, but to join in with Jesus, who was, we'll call him a word warrior. And this is the forecasting for where we're going with the Christmas message, and this just happened by chance, but I think it's pretty cool that it did. What did Jesus say regarding himself? I am the light of the world. I am. Where did he get that? He got it from his father. It's what his father was saying about him. Other people are saying stuff. But Jesus didn't. He thought little of what they were saying. So little that he thought, it, that's not helpful to verbalize back over myself. I'm not going to say those things. Because I hear what my father is saying. And my father says, I'm the light of the world. So I am the light of the world. And the father says, Jesus, you're the bread of life. People need you. They need to feast on you for their very sustenance. And Jesus says unapologetically, hey world, I am the bread of life. He's not just preaching to the world here. He's also preaching to himself, right? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Them's bold words right there. I don't say that. I can't say that because that's not who the father said I am. But that's what the father said Jesus is. And so Jesus unapologetically says, that's who I am. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the bright and morning star. Preach it, Jesus. Tell the truth. Shout it out. Proclaim it from the rooftops. You are the resurrection and the life. You are the bright and morning star. Jesus says, I am unapologetically, friends. Hear my words. I am the good shepherd of the sheep. That's who I am. And because that's who I am, that's what I do. And Jesus is proclaiming the truth against all of the accusations and the mockings and the beratings and the words and actions of violence that come against him that seek to say shame on you. Jesus says, no, I think little of that. And I will preach the truth of what my father says to me and I will declare it because I'm listening to his voice. Think about, right, preach. Who would have thought that the the take-home lesson from a series on shame is preach the gospel or preach the good news of God to ourselves, right? Who would have thought? It is, but because we don't understand the power of words, we don't understand that. But in Genesis chapter 1, right, a Hebrew phrase is vayomar Elohim. You know what that means? It means, and God said, Every single day, and God said, boom, let there be stars. He said it, and there it is. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters. Whoa, there it is. And God said, let there be all manner of crazy cool animals, from giraffes to elephants. And bam, there they were. He is creating with his words. Words have power. Now, my words don't have as much power as his, nor do yours, but we are made in his image, and we also have been given the gift of words, okay? So Genesis 1, you want to get into the Bible and start learning some things? Words have power, primarily God's above all things, creative, life-giving, ordering of disorder kinds of power, magnificent power words have. Now, our words can either align with lies or they can align with truth. Let our words have power. They already do. 
Let them have power according to that which is true. Father, what are you saying about me? Think much of that and then declare that. What the world and what I and my shame am saying to myself, let's think little of that. And let us not verbalize that back over ourselves. Let's put those messages to bed and never bring them out again. Now, I have a theory. I've never heard anybody espouse this theory. It actually just clicked into my mind this week as I was digging into this. But my theory comes from Luke chapter 4, verse 18, and I want to share it with you because I think it's pretty cool. Luke 4, 18, um, this is where Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown. This is the place where they're ready to throw him off a cliff. Okay? We, they're not, they, haven't thrown, they haven't tried to throw him off the cliff yet, but what he's going to say right here is going to prepare them to want to throw him off a cliff. And Jesus gets up in the synagogue on Sabbath day, and then he reads of the scroll of Isaiah, and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And most Bible scholars say this right here is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The beginning. Meaning that like before this, Jesus wasn't doing any like ministry things. I would say, let's, let's clarify that. I agree. This is the beginning of his public ministry to people. And so from now on, Jesus is going to, in the power of the Spirit, start proclaiming good news to the poor. But what, what, what my theory is, is that Jesus has been proclaiming good news to the poor long before this sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth. Meaning that Jesus has been preaching the truth to himself for 30 years. He's the bastard child. No, I'm not. Right? You say I'm that. You say I'm poor. I'm, that's not who I am. I'm a beloved son of the Father. That's who I am. Jesus has been proclaiming good news to the poor from the beginning. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As the world has been saying, shame on you, Jesus, in all the ways that it has been. I think that Jesus has been proclaiming the good news to himself. So when he gets out and starts saying, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and life, I am the bright and morning star, I am the good shepherd of the sheep. Before Abraham was, I am. Those are not new and original messages that he's preaching. He's been speaking that to himself for years in a world that's been saying a whole bunch of different things to him. In the, in the face of a shame-filled world that's been assaulting Jesus, I think he's been preaching to himself what he hears the Father saying to him. The world is coming after you. And the dump truck of shame is always 
just following us around, ready, ready, ready to just dump that all over us. We've got to get good at preaching the truth of what the Father says to our own minds and our own hearts. When shame hits, you got three options. One, you can stay there. You can linger in it. You can hang out. And I, I just wonder if that's why we're the most medicated society that the world has ever seen. I don't mean like physical ailments. I mean mental, emotional, psychological. We can linger in our shame, not having any idea what to do. Well, we can stay there. And we can try to medicate our way out. Number two, we can try to earn and perform our way out. We can try to prove to the world that they're wrong. We can try to prove to ourselves that we're better. We can try to... That's what most of us do. It's a fool's errand. Or number three, we can simply receive the bestowed identity that the Father cloaks upon us. No performance, no merit, no earning, no thing that we have to do to receive it. It's just because he's different than us and he loves us. So he cloaks us with his favor and his grace and his presence and he wraps us up and we're still confused why. But that's okay. We don't have to understand why he does that to us. All we have to do is to receive it and proclaim the truth over our very selves. Band, come on back up. We're going to sing a little bit more. The the reason why we did this series is not because I thought y'all need it. (laughs) You do. But I, I really feel like the Lord has been awakening my heart to some things and putting some pieces together for me for me personally. And oftentimes you guys just, uh, for good or for bad, you get to be in the splash zone of that. But in my own experience, um, I have just, I think, in the last year, two, maybe five, I've just begun to get kinda okay at preaching the good news to myself. You ever feel like God's a million miles away? You ever feel like that? Like, God, where are you? And typically it's because like we've failed or we've messed up or we're feeling shame or I don't know. The world is saying something to us. And I never quite knew what to do with that. I didn't know how to bear that. Either I would linger there for a while or I would try to change my activity and prove the world wrong and prove myself wrong. And then I just had a couple of experiences where the Lord just said, Brian, you just got to stop trying so hard. You got to get off the rat race wheel of performative and earned identity because it's killing you. And I didn't send Jesus to keep you on that wheel. I sent Jesus so that you could know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you've been liberated from that fool's errand and walk freely into my love and kindness and presence and favor. You didn't earn. You don't deserve. But dang it, I still love you like crazy. 
And then when I'm feeling down, I'm feeling shame, I'm feeling worthless, I'm feeling like a loser, and those things regularly happen to me. When those things start to happen, then all, like, I'm just, I'm just learning this. The simplest thing is just to say, I am a beloved son. I'm not the bread of life. I'm not the resurrection in the bright morning star. Like, those are unique to Jesus. But I got some I am's too, and I'm just starting to get acquainted with them. I am the beloved son. So are you. You're the beloved daughter, the cherished one. I am a child of the high king who reigns over all. I'm a citizen of the heavenly realms. I am seated at the right hand of the Father. Are you kidding me? No. Sometimes I need to preach that to myself so that I really start to get it. My future is secure. I am provided for and cared for. I am! So are you. I am washed clean and forgiven. Past, present, future. I am! Just preaching to myself. We got to start getting good at that. Where shame will haunt, rule, and reign over us like a tyrant for the rest of our days. And Jesus says, not so with my people. I've got more for you than that. Father in heaven, thanks for loving us so well. I don't know why you do, but I'm so glad that you do. And Father, by faith, we want to be the people who hear, who learn to hear your words, both in the scriptures and, Father, as you would personalize your words in the Bible to us in our unique moments in time. Father, I pray that you would tune us into your frequency so that we can hear what you are declaring over us because it's good, it is liberating, it is a proclamation of release and freedom and liberty to the poor. And Father, we want to receive that, so help us to hear your voice. And then Father, I pray that you would gift each and every one of us by the power of your spirit and ability to preach your words and your truth over ourselves so that we would be reminded of who we are. I am. Father, I pray from that place that shame would be obliterated and destroyed. As we said after the 1040 last week, that we would just be the people who kick shame in the teeth again and again and again. And it just cowers and falls away, runs for its life because it doesn't have a place here. Would you make us those people? And as you do and our hearts come alive we walk in the liberty that you have already proclaimed over us, Father, we will become the worshiping ones that lift you high more and more and more. And I pray even now, Father, that you would be honored as we sing and set our affection and attention on you because you deserve it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.